Hey, folks, you probably thought Corey and I ran off and joined the circus. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we were, uh, we're, we're a little bit late with this podcast, and we apologize. We appreciate your patience. And those of you who have emailed us and said, hey, where was the most recent podcast? Uh, Here it they're, is. They're about ready to get <laughs> yeah, it. That's so right. uh, with that, um, we're going to jump into this, and Corey's going to be just a fountain of knowledge today. So thanks for being here. Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson, presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery. And my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Go Hunt Maps. Uh, 
We've been using GoHunt Maps since they started, providing them with our feedback and our ideas to add to their maps and their tools. So if you go to GoHunt.com and sign up for their Explorer Maps, you'll get all 50 states for the low price of $49. And by using promo code ELKTALK, they're going to give you $20 of credit in their gear shop that you can apply towards things you might want for this upcoming hunting season. GoHunt.com, Explorer Maps, promo code Elk Talk. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey. You know, it's not very often we get to do this face-to-face. No kidding. It'll be like a real conversation again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Corey Jacobson found it in his powers to end up in Bozeman, Montana on a hot August weekend. Man, it has been warm, but it's also been stormy. I know. I like that. It's been raining every evening. Yeah. Speaking of, did you see the uh, hailstorm that went through Wallowa, Oregon day before yesterday? No. I got to show you pictures here because it was, that was, uh, I just saw a friend of mine, Nick, over there posted pictures and just said it was a rough day for everybody over here. And you got to see. Oh my gosh. We're not talking just hail damage to the hood. We're talking windshields, not just broken, but yeah, imploded sheds completely flattened. That's up in Northeast Oregon. Yeah. Up in Wallowa. I mean, animals outside were dead killed, chickens. dead chickens uh, laying there. There's a picture of the hail. There's three of them about the size of golf oh my balls, gosh. but it gets better than that. Like, How would you like to be an elk standing out there? Oh, look at that thing. That thing is the size of a softball. Yeah, I was going to say it's bigger than a baseball. That was falling from the sky and hitting. I mean, it destroyed roofs. It destroyed every oh windshield, every car God. that was outside. They said the town is basically destroyed. Oh, look at all the si- That guy is siding and roof? Yep. Well, what was siding and what was a roof and what was a windshield in a car? I mean, we're talking the side of cars, not just that, the that hood. like something over in the Ukraine that you see right <laughs> exactly. now. <laughs> Holy so, smokes. Yeah, they, I guess they classified it a tornado and hailstorm. Uh, it certainly looks like the hailstorm. Yeah. Wow. So we'll handle a lightning storm and a little bit of wind for an hour in the evenings, I guess. Man, I, we don't need any of that. I wonder what that does, though, to like a young elk. If a young yeah. elk got drilled in the noggin by a baseball-sized chunk of ice that just fell. Free-falling at terminal velocity. Yeah. <laughs> wonder what the terminal velocity would be. <laughs> it's probably measured in miles per hour not oh feet per it, i guarantee yeah dang huh well, yeah so anyhow welcome yeah. welcome to bozeman thank you yeah. no I, 
I was really surprised. I kept a watch as we were flying in. I was looking out the airplane window. I didn't see a single 400-inch bull. Really? You just weren't looking close That's enough. That's everywhere. I looked behind every tree I could see, and I didn't even see one. Yeah. I, I was down this morning. I was one of the moderators at the Montana Elk Symposium that's being held in Bozeman today. And if I would have asked for a show of hands of who's going to see a 400-inch bull elk this year, probably half people would have raised their hand. I don't know why you guys struggle to see 400-inch <laughs> bull elk with regularity. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, it just... All you got to do is come to Bozeman, get yourself like four or five stickers on the back of your truck. <laughs> you, you, have to have a, you have to have a topper on the back of your truck, right? Put the stickers mm-hmm. on. Well, it, it helps yeah. because then you, you can side panel them, you know, you can yep. look like the 24 car on NASCAR or something. <laughs> and uh, then it really helps if you have like one of those funky rod box lockers exactly. on the top. Yep. I mean, that's, that helps. That You'll see more 400-inch bull elk if you're like that way. Interesting. And if you have a man bun and you shoot a 6.5 Creedmoor, you probably pass multiple 400-inch bull elk. I think elk. you just offended a handful of people right there. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't just offend Bozeman residents. We offended a lot of people in a lot of places with that. You went too far, Randy. <laughs> I know I did, but but here's the reason I I'm I should pull it up. There's a meme out there about the uh, the Bozeman elk hunter. Oh really? And, yeah, and that's where I was walking through all the features of that meme, <laughs> and uh, something at the bottom it says something like six point five cm, and uh, it's like. And the guy had all kinds of, I mean, he had uh, everything. The way they dressed him up, it's like, yeah. That looks like people I've seen around here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyhow, folks, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're listening to the wrong thing. No offense intended. We we, uh, make plenty of fun and humor of ourselves. Uh, (laughs) And if you think we do on this podcast, you should see us when we're out hunting together. (laughs) It's, uh, we make fun of each other then. Well, yeah. I make fun of you. You're you're kind enough not to make fun of me back. Um, uh, and, and there's a point uh, where I feel bad sometimes. No, but. I don't. I, I deserve every bit of it. You know, the, the downside is this is the year I'm going to kill multiple elk, even though I only have two elk tags. Here's why. It's the worst grouse crop ever. Hmm. So you're actually going to be focused I, on I'm elk. I'm actually going to be looking for elk. Forced to Forced. focus. Yeah. I, it's the the shiny objects, and there are I'll, no more. I'll tell you right now, though, I have seen more grouse in the last four weeks than really? I've ever seen in the summer. But with that being said, I've not seen a single young one. They've yeah. all been Adult. singles. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. If you're like me and you're going to try to shoot them with an arrow... You, you need, need the dumb the, ones. You need those dumb young ones that are just plump and fat and just... Haven't been through a season yet. So tender. They're, they're just like juice oozing off them as quick as you peel the breast off. Man. It's like... That does sound good. It is. Yeah. So, but anyhow, uh, what what elk problems are we going to solve today? I'm not sure. You said you were at the Montana Elk Symposium? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds like official. It was pretty official. I mean, I don't know how many people are there. It's a lot. They've been planning it for a long time. There's this group called the Montana Citizens Elk Coalition. And uh, they're trying to head off some of this craziness that we get in our legislature. Uh, You know, I've come to the conclusion that 
if we don't start solving some of these problems amongst ourselves as groups, you know, as landowners and hunters and outfitters and everybody, the legislature steps in. And they're like, okay, yeah, I guess there's a problem. Here's my solution, and it gets passed. They hear one problem from one constituent, and they come up with one solution based on their limited experience, and that's what goes through. Yeah, and none of those are ever sustainable in the long term because usually it's so slanted that the next turnover in a legislature or in an administration, some other constituent gets somebody's ear and... So we did on the morning panel that I was mo- moderating, we did have a legislator there. Um, he's a super good guy, uh, fanatic elk hunter. Uh, so we we solved a lot of the world's problems, I'll tell you that. So I, I guess, and I'd never thought about I was going to ask if there was anyone from the legislature there. Mm-hmm. If you have someone who is a passionate elk hunter who understands a lot of these dynamics and another legislator comes in and introduces something, will they stand up for, I mean, is it typical for them to educate the rest of them? Because I know in Idaho this last year with the mechanicals and the lighted knocks, I didn't feel like there was anybody in in our legislator that understood the issue or understood what was going on. So it went through unanimously. Yeah. And what your hope is, and that is, because a lot of times these things are introduced by people who don't hunt or they're not, they're scope of the problem is limited by the fact that, well, I go out and, you know, out on the family farm and I shoot a white tail though, and that's the extent of their hunting and and nothing wrong with that. It's just what their life experience is. So I've been lucky that over years of being involved, I know which of those legislators hunt and hunt like you and I would. So Regardless of what side of the aisle it's on, I can, you know, try to communicate and say, hey, can, I know you don't want to do this and call them out in front of everybody. So before we get to the committee hearing or whatever, do you think you could share this perspective with that person? And sometimes you can head off some really bad stuff that yeah. way. Um, or sometimes you'll get wind that something's coming up. And there's a couple really good hardcore hunters on both sides here in Montana. And I can pick up the phone. In fact, two of them were in the audience this morning. And I can be like, hey, I hear this is coming. Uh, one, hopefully you can kill it. Or two, can we tweak it this way or that yeah. way? And, and I'm not the only one who has some of those people on who uh, uh have access to them. There, there's other great groups in the state that also have yeah. access. So we are lucky in Montana uh, from the standpoint of how many, maybe not how many, but what percentage of our legislators hunt. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that percentage is, and I certainly don't know what it would be in other states, but I suspect that it's pretty high in Montana. That's cool. So... But we still end up with some really, really questionable <laughs> ideas coming through. Yeah. And when we get them, almost every time the intro- the bill is not sponsored or introduced by one of these folks yeah. who are serious hunters, it's some guy, like you said, you know, he he's a uh, she or whatever, is, is in some profession where they just would never hunt. Yep. 
And so somebody down at the coffee shop or the barber shop or the grocery store is like, yeah, there's, there's hunters in every district in the state. So yeah, yeah, they have to go to one person who's representing them. And yeah. So, uh, the other thing that I think or this is a really good process is if you want to play offense, you don't wait until the legislative session starts. If, 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 if that's all defense, once, yeah. once the legislature starts. So our session will start in six months, five months. Uh, so trying to get ahead of that a little bit and say, hey, here are some ideas that all groups are in support of. Let's think about that. Yeah. Or give the department this latitude because right now, you know, things have changed the last 20 years. The department is locked into this narrow kind of toolkit give them this tool or that tool and so the other thing i have found with wildlife things is if you can get landowner and hunters together to agree on something you don't have to agree on anything but there's some of those things that you can say hey we're all in favor of that that's going through just about 100 to zero yep so but that doesn't allow anybody to directly call in or kill an elk Corey. so we're going to have to get to some of these questions because you've been teaching elk hunting for the last 10 days just about between <laughs> between updating your course yeah uh and then you've been out here with peaks doing their seminar i'm on i'm glad that they got you the first part of that course well, i'm glad i got it done with <laughs> because they get me tomorrow morning for yeah. three hours I hope they brought a lot of caffeine. Oh, it, it's the morning is good. Mark is uh, Mark's up right now. He's doing some e scouting stuff. Mark Livesay, uh-huh. and I feel sorry for him. We had Birch Barrel cooked us lunch, and it was a big old elk oh, burger man. with cheese and bacon, and <laughs> everybody ate it. And you could just see their eyes gloss over and the heat coming through the window. And I, I told him right before I left, I'm like, Mark, if you keep these guys all awake, you have been a smashing success today. Well, he follows me tomorrow, so uh, that's Mark. He has a platform called Treeline Pursuits. Uh, so, well, I'm glad I'm doing the morning exactly. Session yeah, morning's so, good. But no, it does, was. It were was there awesome. any real compelling questions that popped up? Because I know you do a Q and A session there. Yeah, um, and I, I really tried to keep it very open. I talked on four topics. Uh, it was how to use elk calls, mm-hmm. and talked about setting up on elk and then calling elk in and then common scenarios or challenges that you face with calling elk. So it was really heavily calling centered. Uh, We had, there were only 12 seats available. Uh, Like you mentioned, yeah, Peaks only opened 12 seats up. So there's only, and one of the, one of the people who signed up ended up getting COVID. So there's only 11 of the members there. So it really gave me, I mean, I went around one-on-one for about an hour just working on elk calling just to get them all up to speed wow. and make sure that they were improved. And you can't do that, you know, through podcast or seminars. Right. So being in a room and being able to just hands-on, you know, everybody had their calls, everybody was was working on that. It was a lot of fun and a, a really cool atmosphere, a great group of guys who were, obviously, I mean, there was one gentleman there from Calgary above uh, or outside of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, mm-hmm. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, Kansas, you know, there are a couple closer Idaho, Montana guys, but they were, somebody takes a, 
three, four days and sacrifices and comes out from Alabama to Montana <laughs> yeah. to spend a couple of days learning about elk, they're serious. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of sacrifice that will provide results. So huh. really fun group of guys to be able to talk elk hunting with mm. and had some great questions. You know, yeah. there was, that's why I tried telling them, listen, I've been doing this 35 years and I still mess up every single day I elk hunt. So don't think <laughs> that there is a bad question or a beginner mm. question to ask. Ask if you have a question. And Yeah. And, and they that, did. That's where, I guess it's, maybe it's just the nature of, of people's expectations and what we do. But when I tell people I invent new ways to mess up an encounter, <laughs> they seem to think I'm just kidding. Yeah. What is it? Your but aggressive arrogance or your passive pa arrogance? Passive arrogance. <laughs> uh, I am a hundred percent honest when I say that. I know this year I have my Montana elk tag that I'm going to hunt archery. And then I probably will mess up enough things there. I'll have to come back and try it in rifle in November. <laughs> and I have my Wyoming general elk tag. There is going to be multiple days where I screw it up so bad because I don't even see an elk. It's like, how could I have been this dumb? Randy, think about this. You know, I, I was hunting too high or too low or who knows what. Or, or I thought I could cheat a thermal, right? This, this is my <laughs> great... The, I, so... I hear a bugle over there, and the sun is kind of just starting to crank over on this slope I'm on. So there's an uphill thermal. The bull's on, across the basin, and that's still a little bit shaded where he is. And somehow I think I can cheat these thermals where you got one going up and one going down, but when they get to the back, they kind of swirl. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to sneak. I only have like 30 yards, and he's 200 yards away. I don't know how many times I have. I'm just going to try it and see if it'll work out. Yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> uh, so those are, when, when I say I invent new ways, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I, yep. Or I heard a bugle and then I heard it getting a little closer and I didn't anticipate that he's still coming. So I focused on where the last bugle was that I heard. <laughs> and that's what I set up for as I move it in. Well, guess what? He knew I was somewhere around, so he moved downwind to me. And I'm I'm hunting Still towards Still moving his... in the straight line? Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're... <laughs> <laughs> you just look at the camera and you're like, oh, guys, don't record this. This yeah. is... This is I, yeah, we talk about Murphy's Law, and it's like, you know, at some point, it's just our own ignorance. <laughs> it's, yeah. It has nothing to do with Murphy. Yeah. But I think the, the problem for me, I make more mistakes archery elk hunting, and part of that is just the distance thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, if he's bugling over there at 250 yards and I got my 300 with me, it's, there's usually a, a yeah. shot fired. Uh, and I think it's that. I also think it's the excitement factor. Because as excited as I get if I see a bull out there at 200 yards... I'm not shaking and rattling and my teeth chattering like when he, I can see him <laughs> over there just on the other side of some, you know, lodgepole or something, just tearing something apart and he's 18 yards away and I yep. can feel him like the vibration. So I think that contributes oh, to, to my messed up thought process. And since we started using, you know, lapel mics and everything, it's so fun because you can hear people's heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, you can hear physical 
heartbeat uh. on the lapel mic, and it's so fun as that bull gets to 100 yards and then closes to 60. It's boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and then it gets to 30, and it's boom, 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 boom. You, know, you, can, you can see it, and you can feel it, and it's, it's real. That's what somebody asked, you know, how do you control that? And I'm like, I don't know, and I don't ever want to know. I yeah. never want to control. I mean, yes, you want to be under control, but, man, if, if that excitement ever goes away, I, I've never called in an elk where my heart rate didn't escalate. Yeah. And I hope I never do. If, uh, yeah. I, I've never had an encounter. In fact, when I get a response, I can instantly <laughs> feel like, oh, man. You just went to a new level. Yeah. And then as you get closer and closer. But uh, the questions people ask or some of the questions we got here, uh, a lot of it is about the setups, you know, I, I heard the bull, I've got a response. How much do I call? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of scenario stuff coming in right now. I think people are remembering last season, very, you know, <laughs> and when nine out of 10 of the hunters that are out there are remembering nothing but failure from last season, uh, it, it stings a little. And so we're getting a lot of questions and that was, you know, I think the, the most thought out questions today at, at the elk camp with peaks was scenario based. Mm. You know, I had a, a group of elk out in an open field in front of me. And I thought if I can make it up to that little dip in the, in the, you know, depression in the landscape, I can get in there and call and didn't think, didn't realize that when I called the elk was going to turn around and not be able to see anything. And it's in a wide open field and that just wouldn't be right. And so he rounded up his cows and left. What should have I done? Yeah. And, you know, in, in that case, it's always let them go. They, you aren't pressuring them. They aren't leaving because of you at that point. Let them get across the field into the timber. Then you slip around the edge of the timber, and now you can go and, and make a play. But when you slip out in the middle of an open field and bugle at them and they turn around, yeah, you might get lucky one out of 20 times, and that bull might turn and come across the open field thinking, wow, I should be able to see something. I wonder why I can't see them. But 95% of the time, they're thinking... I should be able to see something and I don't. So that probably means danger. Let's leave. And yeah. so there's nothing wrong with just, you know, being a little patient, let them do their thing in that open field and eventually they're going to leave it. And that's when you go and move in. Yeah. Make sure that the setup is in your favor, not in their favor. I, I have a bolded quote in the University of Elk Hunting online course. It says, it will do you no good to call in a bull in a bad setup. Ooh. That should be a bumper sticker. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> that, that should be a tag that you put right on the inside of the riser on your bow, right Ooh, at high level. Yeah. Maybe instead of bumper stickers, we ought to just sell... Limb like, stickers. Yeah, limb stickers. Ooh, yeah. we're on to something here. There you go. Limb stickers. <laughs> that's like a pot sticker. <laughs> or like a pot liquor. You know? <laughs> limb sticker, pot liquor, pot sticker. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I, that's, that's really good advice. And that probably answers three or four of the questions that came in of, well, what do I do? Because I knew I'd been chasing this bull and I finally caught up. Well, a lot of times the reason you catch up per se, you know, quote unquote, is because the bull knows they're now in the place that he's he, got all the advantages. <laughs> and I tell people... If you think that this bull elk that lived five, six, eight years on this landscape doesn't know the wind current in every little nook and cranny of his territory, you're kidding yourself. Yep. 
And he knows where every vantage point visually is. He knows where he needs to get to if there's something behind him where he can watch. I mean, he he knows that, and he goes there on purpose. Yeah, he's not an occasional visitor there like (laughs) we are. He lives there. He's dodging grizzly bears and mountain lions and who knows what else. And this is how he stays alive, is by paying attention to... Well, if I go stand over here, there's this little drainage that carries the scent up there. And so if those guys come across. If they cross I'm, anywhere below me here, that yeah. scent's going to funnel right yeah. here. So I'm going to stand right here. Yeah. And then I, Randy Newberg, walks across there and all of a sudden you're. <laughs> dum, 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 dum. And then you hear me say a few colorful words, turn the camera. Well, I did this last week. Why did I yeah. do it again? <laughs> so I guess the point of that is, is. Like you said, you know, it doesn't do any good to call in an elk where the setup sucks yeah. where they have all the advantage. Yeah, and there there are a few things I think that will that make a setup maybe not perfect and but more ideal. And that elk has to feel comfortable coming in. You know, he, he's not gonna come into a setup if he's uncomfortable. And the things that make him uncomfortable are I'm not gonna be able to see when I go in there, I'm not gonna be able to hear when I go in there, or I'm not going to be able to smell when I go in there. If they can't use their senses to protect themselves, they're not going to feel comfortable. So the goal is to make that elk feel comfortable, make him feel like he's able to use his senses when he comes in. And when you have a collar and a shooter separated, it's a lot easier to do that. Right. Because then the collar's back there saying, okay, I'm going to do all I need to do to make that bull come in feeling comfortable because he thinks I'm the only threat, potential threat in the area. So you have to remember when an elk's coming into a bugle, He's still thinking there may be danger between me and that bugle. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to make sure before I go approaching that bugle that I'm, I've got a good visual or I can see really good or smell really good. And if he can't, he's going to stop right there. And he's not going to take a chance. The elk aren't like us. It's like, I, th- I wonder, maybe I can make this happen. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I can beat the thermals <laughs> just this once. Elk don't do that. They're like, if there's any chance that I can't beat the thermals, I'm not moving because yeah. I'm safe right here. And so setting up, you know, with that shooter out in front, what that does is you become an invisible player out in front. And then it's just a a competition, a a contest between the caller and the elk. And when that caller can make the elk come toward him feeling like he's protected, then the shooter just needs to make sure that he's in a place where he can take advantage of of that elk coming in feeling comfortable. Yeah, that that seems so common sense, but... In the heat of the moment, it's, (laughs) I mean, you think about all the information you're trying to process at that time, you know, the wind, the sun angle, the attitude you think the bull has, the, you know. You're out of breath. You've got your oxygen deprived in your brain. You're trying to throw a bugle out there. Yeah. All these things at once. Yeah. I wish I could get across this little opening to the other side, but he's on his way in and he might catch me in the middle of it. So, okay, I'll set up on this side and hope he's dumb enough. It's not ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So many times. And I, I, it's so much different rifle hunting, like in Colorado two years ago, same exact setup you're talking about. There's a bull on a timbered ridge, just snorting. And it's the first rifle season. And so I I turned to the camera. I'm like, I would never do this in archery season (laughs) because there's no way this bull will come across this opening. But I happen to have a 300 wind mag in my hand and it's only 120 yards across this opening. 
So I start cow- All he has calling. to do is show himself once. Yeah. He doesn't have to come in to us. He just needs to be visible. But as an example, he would stick his head out from behind some trees and he'd look. Where's this cow I hear? And he turns and he doesn't see a cow. He just quietly turns and walks. And as I see him walking away, what do I do? I don't give him no. All of a sudden he turns and he's like, where is that thing? And again, he sticks his head just out of the trees enough to check it out. And, uh, well, the second time he did that, it was bad news. But (laughs) he was a really broken up five by five. But he was six years old when I got his teeth uh, uh, aged. So he'd been around a time or two. And he was just, he was really cagey. He wasn't like a raghorn that's like, oh boy, oh boy. (laughs) Come running in, cloppity clop, cloppity clop. Yeah, like a reindeer or something. (laughs) And so uh, I'd made that mistake so many times archery hunting. And then even after I shot him, we heard him fall or we thought we heard him fall. I turned to the camera again and said, don't ever do this in archery season. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't think this is an archery tactic yep. because it's not that. The that goal's was, different. I mean, mm-hmm. and it really is. And that's when you set up, um, you have to think about the, the end goal at the beginning of the setup. The end what goal, do you mean by that? Well, when, when you're setting up to call in an elk, the end goal isn't to shoot the elk. The end goal, I mean, yes, that ultimately is, but the goal you're trying to do is to get that elk into a shooting lane. Mm-hmm. And so when you set up, that needs to be what you're thinking about. You can't just set up and put an arrow on and be like, I got to shoot this elk. Right. There's a lot of things that are, are required to get that elk into the shooting lane that ultimately allows you to shoot that elk. So it's important, I think, when you're setting up to think about that, that aspect of it. What do I need to do to get that elk into a place where I can get a shot? When you're doing that, you look around, okay, I could shoot an elk if he's there, I could shoot an elk if he's there, I can shoot an elk if he's there. Are those realistic places for that elk to come to? Hmm. Does he have to come through a great big alder thicket to get to right there? If he does, he's not going to do it. Right. Is there a big game trail that's going to bring him right there to that shooting lane at 35 yards, and it gives me 10 yards, you know, a place where there's a tree, he's going to walk behind that, I'm going to draw my bow. I mean, you can almost visualize each of these situations, and when you set up in that manner, in fact, I told the, the people this morning at the elk camp, it's okay for the caller to go up to the shooter's location before he backs up. That way he knows what's there. Yeah. The caller can see, okay, here's where I need to get the bull. Here's where he's probably going to come through. And then you drop back 40 or 50 yards on the backside of the hill and pull him back through there. So keeping that in mind when you're setting up that, hey, the goal isn't to kill an elk here. The, the goal is to get the elk in a shooting lane, which will result in a good shot and a kill. So, I mean, it, it is the goal, but you need to think... A little more detailed than that. Huh. See, I, I'm like confession. <laughs> <laughs> Too often I get excited and I'm just like plop down right here because, oh man, he's on his way in. Yep. And if I took two extra seconds, I probably would have got myself in a spot that gave me more options. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can, I can screw it up with the best of them. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, some of some of the other questions that we've got recently have been about, you know, I hunt solo. So therefore a lot of times I don't even call. Yeah. Um and I get that, but then some of them are like, what do I do when I'm all by myself because it seems like when they come in they're facing right at me. They know exactly where I was at. 
And they so. do. And that's the hard part is, you know, when, when you're hunting by yourself, you are the caller and the shooter. When you have two people and you have a caller and a shooter, you have two separate entities there that are able to physically separate. And that's, that's almost a requirement to be able to kill an elk. You have to have a caller and a shooter geographically in different locations. And so when you're hunting by yourself, you have to figure out a way to at least give the appearance that there's a separation between the caller and the shooter. And, you know, your setup is even more critical. One of the things I think that, that most elk hunters struggle with is when an elk gets to 80 or 100 yards and stops. Yep. And they're like, oh, that hang up, you know, the, the right. hang up. He hung up at 80 yards. He hung up at 100 yards. If I could just get him that last 40 yards, well, there's a reason he hangs up there. And it's usually because the bull gets to a point where he can see the location the calls are coming from, but he can't see the source of the calls. And you don't want him to see the source of the calls because that's a human sitting there. <laughs> but if he sees that tree and he's like, the noise is coming from behind that tree, I should be able to see an elk and I don't. I'm not taking a step closer until I get visual confirmation. That's a problem. So when you're a, a caller setting up for a separate shooter, you can kind of eliminate that just by picking the calling location and getting back so that bull has to get to a certain point He's in a shooting lane at that point before he can see that location. When you're by yourself, that's hard to do. So really there's only two things that you can do to create the illusion of that separation. The first thing is you call as the caller and then you physically move ahead to a shooting location. So you call from a tree, you move ahead 30 yards and you wait there and that elk's coming by looking for the source 30 yards behind you. And that can work. Um, Moving ahead on an elk when you're in, you know, because we're talking usually inside 100, 150 yards, you want to move ahead 30 yards to create some separation, and that's risky. Yeah. You're going to, a lot of times, get spotted. So the other thing you have to do is you have to broadcast your calls like a ventriloquist. You know, you have to send your calls to a location. Like howdy doody. Uh, okay. <laughs> Is Howdy yeah. Doody a ventriloquist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Howdy yeah. Doody was the little wooden doll over there. Oh, uh, okay. Talk. Gotcha. Oh, sorry. No. I'm old. Yeah, I've heard of sorry. Howdy Doody. I just... Yeah. Okay. okay. So, yes, you, you have to Howdy Doody it. So, this, this is the Howdy Doody tactic, I guess. Ventriloquist sounds a little bit more formal and, and intelligent, but hey, it's the same thing. Family, it's the same. It's the same. It's slack here. <laughs> But no, you need to broadcast your calls so that it seems like the calls are coming from a, a place that they aren't. And I always say, if you're going to do that with your bugle tube, you know, if you're going to bugle, don't bugle straight at the elk. If you bugle straight at an elk from 100 yards away, he's going to know within six inches where that sound came from. Hmm. And if you're going to stay there and not move ahead, you know, 30 yards, he's going to come in to 60, 70 yards where he can see that location and then he's not going to come any closer. But... If you turn around and you broadcast it straight behind you, he might think, okay, that sounded like it was 120 yards back there instead of 80 yards. He's going to come in, but he's coming straight at that sound, which means he's coming straight at you. And that's where you hit that 40 yards. He stood there frontal at 40 yards and they had no shot. Mm -hmm. So I always like to angle it behind me at like a 45 degree angle. So it pulls him off to the side a little bit and behind me. So as he comes in, he's maybe not coming in straight head on. He might be circling a little bit to the left or to the right and hopefully giving me a better chance at a broadside shot. Hmm. That makes sense. Does it? It makes way too much sense. Okay. But the, 
Well, it's, I, I it's need the, a, it's the I need a whole riser full of stickers. Okay, <laughs> a checklist. Yeah, the setup checklist. <laughs> uh, well, that's uh, those are questions that that we've got from a lot of people. Uh, some other ones, as I've summarized them, are uh, man, I had this elk. He was just really getting with it, uh, but then he shot up and. I swear I heard him out there like 70, 80 yards. What should I have done? Should I have called? Did I set up in the wrong place? How many elk, I mean, in my experience, I, I'm going to answer it but, the way it is for me, but a lot of elk, when I do get calling with them, it's like they come in, they come in, and all of a sudden, it's quiet, quiet. And I'm like, where did he go? And I'll get impatient. I get the old ants in the pants problem, and I'll start moving along. All of a sudden, I hear he's just standing there watching and waiting. He was watching me. Yeah. No, and that's. I mean, it goes back to the elk senses. They're they're survivalist. Mm -hmm. Every single second, they are aware there's something out there trying to kill them, and they have to be really smart about their actions. And so, when an elk's coming into the calls, there there are times, no doubt, that a bull will be so enraged out of his mind in the rut that he just forgets about that for a little bit. Nine times out of 10 in the peak of the rut, they still don't forget about staying alive. So <laughs> you get that bull that comes in and he's like, okay, I can't see where the calls are coming from, but they're fairly close. And if I put my head down and go busting through all of this brush, I'm not going to be able to see, I'm not going to be able to hear. And all of a sudden I'm going to pop out right in the lap of whatever's making this noise. And I don't know if there's danger between me and there. I don't know if what's making that noise is danger. And mm -hmm. even if it is another bull elk, I go poking my nose out of that brush 20 yards from me. He might be re you know, right there ready to rear up and go and come running over there and have a physical advantage and knock me to the ground and stick a tine through my lung. And yeah. I don't want that to happen today. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're going to stay back there and realize I can't go any closer and be comfortable. So I'm going to yeah. sit here and just be quiet and listen and see, you know, is he sneaking in on me? You know, is there danger between me and him? If I just sit here and listen for five minutes and not make any noise, maybe something will get impatient and come walking towards me and I'll realize there's danger there. And that's you and me that that's we really. sit there and it's like, I cannot sit any longer. It's been 31 <laughs> seconds. I need to go now and stand up and go busting through that brush. And you get out there and he's running the other direction. That's the one thing I always try to remind myself is that an elk doesn't have to be home for dinner. An elk hasn't promised somebody, I'll meet you on this ridge at <laughs> 1130. He, he is just whatever it takes. Yeah. To, has no schedule. Yeah. To stay alive. That's how long I'm going to check this out. Yep. And we, I think I fall into this and I think a lot of hunters do. We tend to think that elk are as impatient and in as big of a hurry as we are. Yep. They are not. They, they, they have no reason to be. And for me, I think that you definitely lose momentum. You know, when you've mm -hmm. got a bull, you're vocally engaged there, and you're both calling, 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 and then all of a sudden he goes quiet. And it's like, oh, you need something. You know, it, it was built up almost to that crescendo, and then all of a sudden it just shuts down, and you're like, I just lost all that momentum. Mm -hmm. So I need to force something to happen here. And I think that's a, a mistake. Like you said, patience is key right there. And that elk probably isn't going to turn and come running right in there at any point. There's nothing you're going to be able to do probably to break him loose and turn that back on. But let him turn around and go back 150 yards. Let him turn around and go back to the herd 
you re-engage, this time move up, get into a better setup, and hit him again. Mm-hmm. And he's going to call in. You go busting through the brush and bump him out of there, and that, that hunt's over. So yeah. patience is key. Even if it, if, if it means him turning and leaving and going away, that's okay. He hasn't been alerted to danger. Just let him go, reset, move up, find a better setup, and start it again. Yeah. And that's, you know, you work so hard to finally have an encounter or have an elk that's bugling back. Don't assume that, oh, well, the next ridge will have one and the next basin <laughs> will have one. It, it may, but. Man, not oh, where I hunt. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, all right, just take a minute, think this through. Yeah. And I don't care if you're rifle hunting or, or you're archery hunting. Probably even more important, rifle hunting. <clears throat> yeah, because. Those opportunities, I think, are even fewer and farther between. They they certainly aren't broadcasting their location yeah. as much in rifle season. And, you know, I, I tell people that you've worked so hard with your e-scouting, your planning, your hunting while you're out there to find it. To, to find a bull and this is your chance, this is your encounter, give it the thought in the, in the just, I guess, deliberation that it needs. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a question yeah. I asked this morning, you know, we were talking a lot about aggressive calling and mm-hmm. the challenge bugle. And I, I demonstrated the challenge bugle. I said, how many of you, most of them were less experienced hunters. I said, how many of you are going to go out in two weeks the first elk that comes into you, you know, that you get bugling when it gets to a hundred yards, how many of you are going to be comfortable making the sound I just made? And nobody raised their hand. I said, why is that? And all of them kind of nodded and said, we don't want to mess it up. Yeah. And it's like, you get that one chance. And I think too many times elk hunters are afraid to mess it up. So they don't do what they need to do. They're too timid and they wait for, for an opportunity rather than creating an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to calling, I think, you know, for me, it's like, be more aggressive, be more aggressive, be smart about it, think about it. But man, when you're set up in the right place and you've got that bull right there in the palm of your hands and you light him up, magic happens. Yeah. And if you sit there and wait, sometimes he's like, all right, I've, I've lost interest, momentum's gone, and he turns and leaves. And you miss out on that opportunity that could have been created. Do you think that's why I have more close encounters the last two or three days of my hunt than the first two or three? You know, it could do, uh, certainly could. I think the last two or three days. I get more aggressive. I I was just going to say, it's almost, it's not desperation, but yes, you realize I only have a couple days. I've got to, I'm going to try this and try to make something happen. There's that, but there's also, you've got four days behind you of, okay, the elk weren't here. The elk weren't here. You kind of narrow down. Here's where we're going to focus and hunt because this is where the elk are. And so I think it's a combination of, of everything there. Yeah. But I know I get more. I don't, it's not desperate. I get more um, willing to push harder, mm-hmm. more aggressive, willing to be aggressive. Yeah. Well, I I fall into the category you mentioned a lot of the, the folks who wouldn't raise their hand of like, oh man, I don't know. What if I screw this up? I finally found an elk. Yeah. It's, I guess it, 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 a couple of things to that is a lot of people, we get our share of comments of folks saying, why do you guys share all this information? Why, 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 you know, took me 40 years. Grandpa finally told me the secret. (laughs) So we, all of you who send those emails, thanks for the reminder that, you know, you think we share too much information, but, uh, the other point of, of, of that is you still got to go out there and do it. And going out there and doing it is where you start getting a bit of this 
intuitive, instinctive gut feeling of, okay, I know I probably don't want to blow this, but this is the time to be more aggressive. Yeah. And that comes with, with having enough failures. You know, look, look at a pitcher in baseball. Hmm? It's bottom of the ninth. You're up by one point. Bases are loaded. You've got a, a guy at the plate. You've got him, you know, two and two, let's say, on the count. You know that you need to either throw a really hard fastball or you need to throw a really nasty curve to him to get him to swing. And a fastball's taking a chance. You know, a fastball <laughs> down the middle, it's like he could hit this <laughs> and a hit sweet it. One. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to take a chance and throw a curveball. But there's also a greater chance on a curveball that it's going to get away from you and you're going to mess up. Yeah. But you've got to do what you've got to do to, you've got to take a risk sometimes and you've got to step out of your comfort zone and do what might not be the, the most comfortable thing to do. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of the same. It's not like you're throwing a curveball by being aggressive with elk, but at the same time, yeah, there's a chance you could mess it up. Yeah. But if you really want to succeed, if you want to hit that home run, if you want to strike the, you know, whatever it is, if you want to come out on top, sometimes you've got to do something that's uncomfortable. Yeah. That's good advice. Another, another uh, riser sticker, be uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the one I got to remind myself of because I'll admit, and I think this is just either this is the inherent nature of of accountants or this is why I became an accountant is, you know, kind of the world of accounting is first thing, don't do anything wrong. Yeah. You know, do no damage. Is, you know, you, Second you, thing is, if you do something wrong, blame the client, right? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You remember when I said that, if someone's going to jail, make sure it's a client. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I fall into that category of, at times, letting my passiveness or my just concern of how hard, you know, it's been day three and finally I got an out that's working it and oh, I don't want to mess this up. Yeah. I, I fully get where those those folks are coming from. Well, it's uh, funny, kind of related but unrelated. I was trying to teach them how to growl when they're making mm -hmm. their bugle. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you have to get that real deep, frustrated sound mm -hmm. in there to, to get a good growl at the beginning and end of your bugle. And one of the guys was struggling a little with it, so I went to help him out. And I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm an accountant. <laughs> And I said, oh, perfect. I'm like, okay, it's April 14th, 6.30 p.m. And someone calls you and says, I forgot to send you my, my taxes. I need them done tonight. You know, I have to have them turned in tomorrow. Um, can you do that? What, what's going through your mind? He's like, well, I'm not that kind of an accountant. I'm like, well, pretend you are. You know someone who is. You gotta, you'll get frustrated there. And... Oh, well, uh, what, uh, for that type of accountant, you'd say, all right, I closed the books for the month. And then somebody comes in and says, oh, did I tell you about this loan we took out last month? <laughs> that needs to be recorded as a liability. So you got to re recall go. the financial statements. And then they would go, <laughs> but, Perfect growl. Yeah. But, um, when when we get into these setups, <clears throat> or maybe not, a, this isn't necessarily a setup question. Uh, some people have asked, "Can I call? Can I? Is calling going to be as effective in late September and early October when the rut is? You know, it's it's weird because all the data says the the peak conception rates are September twentieth through October fifth, but." you see some serious rutting activity going on before that. 
Yeah. And some people seem to think that, oh, the rut's over by you September hear that all the rut was early this year. Yeah. Well, that's funny. The calves are all born on the same day again <laughs> this year. Yeah. But a lot of people are asking, you know, can I be as aggressive? Because by then they've heard everything. They're kind of wore down. They're any difference in how yeah. you call or how you approach so, it? So you have to, you know, understand, I think, the full dynamic of what's going on. The, the main rut, like you said, the main conception happens September 20th through October 5th. Let's just say there's a two-week period there. Uh, the fall equinox happens right about the same time that the conception begins. That's what mm-hmm. triggers the estrus cycle, September 21st, 22nd. So you're going to have, obviously not every cow is going to come into estrus at the same time because they won't all be able to be bred right. by one bull. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they're definitely spread out. The older ones come into estrus first, the younger ones a little later, and that gives a bull seven to 10 days there to, to find cows, to hang out with them and to breed the cows. So before that, there's a lot of activity of establishing who the herd bull is, who the dominant bull is, who the breeding bull is going to be. And that's a, that's a process all on its own. That's a process outside right. of the, the actual right. conception process there. Right. So there's a lot of activity from, say, September 10th through the 20th, establishing, you know, rounding up the herds, getting all the cows together so that the breeding can be effective, uh, establishing which bull is the dominant bull. There might be a great big 900-pound 7 by 7 over there who's 11 and a half years old, who you think that is the big daddy I want hanging on my wall. Well, that's not the big daddy that the cows want, mm-hmm. you know, helping them have a calf next spring. Yeah, It might be this really slick looking five and a half year old six point who is just in the prime and he is the, the breeding bull. Yeah. So, you know, in our mind, what the herd bull is and what the actual breeding herd bull is might be different, but the elk know that they, they've, establish that by the time it gets there. So you've got that process where things are really intense. The two weeks leading up to that is when the bulls have split up from their bachelor groups and might not be as vocal, but they're every bit as susceptible to the calls because they are very territorial. uh, They're very irritable. uh, There's a lot going on there. So different stages there leading up to the rut. You know, the pre-rut isn't just one period. There's multiple things that happen in the pre-rut. Uh, even the peak rut, there's there's things that happen. And then post rut, there's definitely lingering going on. These young bulls that are like, all right, this testosterone has built up to the point where it's, <laughs> you know, coming out my eyeballs here. And I got beat up so many times, but I know there's still a cow out there that hasn't been bred. I've got a finder, you know, I'm running around everywhere trying to bugle. So there's going to be opportunities into that first part of October for sure. Uh, breeding is still taking place then. So there's still going Mm. to be vocal herd bulls. After that, it definitely tapers off. But then you have to remember, there's a 26 to 28 day window there where the cows are going to come back into estrus if they didn't get bred. And there's a percentage, you know, I don't know exactly what percentage, but I would say 15 to 20% of the cows probably don't get bred during that main initial estrus Mm. period. So all those cows that don't get bred come back into estrus three and a half to four weeks later. So we're talking on a calendar, October 18th through Halloween. Yeah. So there's going to be another window there where there may be a flurry of bulls bugling and fighting to, you know, be able to have the right to breed those handful of cows that are coming back into estrus. So calling can work. And then again, you've got another one, three and a half, four weeks later for that 
tiny little fraction of the cows that didn't get bred that might get bred even into November. Yeah. Uh, so we get, you know, the, the <clears throat> questions that I saw emailed over, there was one that said, I'm going hunting uh, first week in November. Is it worth even taking calls? Probably not. You know, I might, yeah. t- I would definitely always have a cow call with me to stop an elk if it's going across an opening, get it to stop so you can get a shot with the rifle. Uh, somebody said they're hunting first season in Colorado, which I think is the first right. week of October. That, that's the early season. First this yeah, year, I think, season. is October 14th. But okay. yeah, that so, early season in Colorado is yep. like no-brainer. Yeah. Absolutely. So general season in Idaho opens in most areas either October 10th or 15th. Ooh. I would not miss out on an opening day opportunity to get into aggressive calling. Mm-hmm. You know, again, depending on the area, you go into... You know, some areas in Colorado and there's a sea of orange on the hillside. Yeah, that's not the time to get aggressive with calls. But, <laughs> but yeah, calls are effective. They're most effective, I would say, in that pre-rut period leading up to the conception. So the 10th through the 20th time phase. That's when calling is going to be most efficient and effective. Uh, calling is going to be most... Uh, you're going to hear more calls during the conception period. Because that's how the bulls and cows communicate. You know, bulls are displaying their dominance. They are, you know, trying to keep other bulls away, all of that. So you're going to hear a lot more communication then. The problem is is they're locked in on on cows that are in estrus. So you aren't going to be as effective of calling those herd bulls in at that point. Yeah. After that, they're less effective, but absolutely they still work. You can still get responses. You can still call elk in. But for the most part, you're rifle hunting into that period and you don't need to call them into 20 yards. They pipe off once, you should be able to get to an opening and stop them in an opening and get a shot. So if I'm hunting any time from August 24th through, (laughs) I might might stretch the window a little farther than it needs stretched, (laughs) but yeah, definitely into the uh, the mid to 20th part of October, I'm carrying elk calls and I'm going to, I'm going to use them. Yeah. Well, this year, Montana's rifle opener, I was just looking at my calendar, is October 22nd. That's oh. as early as it ever is in Montana. For really? Rifle opener. Uh, my first bull elk that I shot here was an October 23rd bull elk. Um, and I'd heard a bugle and I thought it was a hunter. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I hear, <laughs> I look, here comes a cow elk walking by, and here comes a bull right behind her. Boom. I guess I wasn't a hunter. Uh, and then I, I'm just thinking about all the other elk that I've heard bugling. Uh, my son shot one on October 26th was opening day uh, up in central Montana. In, uh, I'd been up there scouting for three days, and these bulls were just tearing it up. And we went and the night before we watched them it's like boy that's a great big one uh, and my brother was here from minnesota he's like there's no way he'll be here in the morning we walk in in the dark and their bugling walked us right to him yep it's like you boys might want to quit this because you know in about 10 minutes when it's shooting light and not going to be a good day for you. Yeah. Uh, and so he shot that elk. And so I, I, I think about the number of elk I've heard bugling. Well, Matthew and I shot two of them out of the same herd on Halloween. And there was one young, I looked like a yearling. She was running for her life. 
And every bull within miles around, the, the bull to cow ratio there <laughs> was, I mean, we weren't talking per hundred cows. Yeah. We're talking bulls per one cow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, when we, we were hunting in Montana in November with you mm-hmm. and the bulls were bugling, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there was a, it was a bachelor group of bulls where there, mm-hmm. I don't remember, six, eight bulls in a group Yeah, and they were bugling. Yeah. And yeah. Bugling hard and aggressive. Yep. I've had that in Wyoming. Uh, me and uh, Pat were there November like 10th, I think it was. And there's snow on the ground. And yep. there's a herd of about 200 cows. And there are probably 12, 15 bulls right in this one little segment of the herd. And they're, yep. <laughs> they're all pointing at herd. Exactly. Well, and, and it goes back to... That's October, November 10th. So you go back to September 20th, mm-hmm. first conception period. Yeah. Add three and a half weeks to that. You're looking, you know, October, October 18th, 18th-ish, yeah. 17th, 18th. So you're going to get a flurry there. Then you go three and a half weeks forward from there. You're looking November 10th, 12th, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we're that saying you that. <laughs> 80% of the cows get bred that first time. That leaves 20% the next time. Let's say 80% of them get bred that time. So we're down mm-hmm. to only four out of 100 cows that haven't been bred in November. And some of them may not get bred. But yeah. like you said, every bull that's still wanting to breed... Yeah. And you have to think about this. Elk are not like humans. Their their desire to breed is not the same. For elk, it is, I've got to pass on this posterity that mm-hmm. we have to breed to. That's just a natural part of the cycle of life for us. Right. That's... And so if there's a cow in estrus in November, that bull says, I've got a job to do. Mm-hmm. And I need to go there and... There just happens to be 10 other guys lined up there. It creates some chaos for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, for that guy, it's probably, you know, like when you're in college and you, you you start making out and then your roommate comes in and it's like, don't you got something better to do, pal? <laughs> you know, you're pretty frustrated with that guy. It's like, you know, you want me to just whoop you now and throw you out or are you going to leave of your own accord here? Man, but, I, I, I've, I've never put that analogy to it before. But well, that's, it, it's a good one. Yeah. 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 I mean, I. Sorry, Corey. No, what you get with me? Corey's blushing. No, I'm blushing behalf. over here. I, I didn't know where Andy was going with, and I thought, oh man, oh man. But now that's yeah. It's just there's a, a limited resource, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a big supply chain standing there. That, yeah. So yeah, well, I mean, that, calling, that answers the question, folks. That calling into late September for sure, even the early half of October is. Yeah. Don't don't think you're wasting your time. If I was hunting any time before October 15th, I would be looking for an elk that was bugling. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be out there carrying my calls just in case. I would be right. using my calls to try to find an elk that bugles because that's yeah. such an advantage to locating an elk. Yeah. If, if I had a Colorado first rifle tag this year, I think it's October 14th. Ah. Uh, I'd be there a day or two ahead and I'd be calling a lot. Yep. And if I located where they're hanging out in the dark opening morning, I wouldn't hesitate at all to be making some noise. Now, I wouldn't be out there with a decoy because <laughs> yesterday, Corey and I got to talk to Luke and Josh and they had a Montana decoy outline stood up because they'd been out archery hunting. They were fortunately leaned up against the tree taking a nap. And an arrow comes winging over them. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then it said, you know, it's from the other side of the opening. It was a longer shot, but somebody saw the decoy and launched an arrow at it with them set up somewhere not too far away behind it. And that's, uh, first so I, off. I would never do that in rifles. No. But I never. I've never heard of anybody guard. shooting. I just, you would think, yes, Montana decoys are very realistic looking, but they're not that realistic looking. <laughs> And you have to think uh, at some point a cow elk standing there staring at you, yeah. you know, is... Well, the benefit of if you were doing that on a Colorado rifle hunt, first rifle, you'd have an orange hat and an orange yeah. vest. So if they shot you then, it might not have been accidental. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people if I get killed in a hunting accident, it's probably not an accident. Yep. It's intentional. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but those are the, the those kind of questions you know you can almost go to the other end of it uh of people asking how early how do you early? start calling we posted a uh uh clip on our youtube channel where jonathan had set up a uh a trail camera here in montana and it wasn't a 400 inch bowl outside the bow's been here but yeah, it was but a nice six point yeah, uh, I'm sure it'll be a 400 inch bull next yeah, year. Yeah, it comes walking by the camera, and the date says August 20th. This thing stands there in front of the camera and rips it like it's September 20th. Yep. Now, if I would have been out in the woods, here's what my answer would have been like: <laughs> some dumb knothead is out here practicing his scaring field. all the elk before season. Yeah, I, I've not heard that that early before but there it is on camera you can yeah. see him standing there you know stomach glunking and it's like oh this is an eye-opener for the me maybe, maybe start, i'm discounting these yeah. noises i hear well the second they start stripping their velvet and going hard mm -hmm. horn the, there's a trigger that makes that happen that's the same trigger that starts the the rutting process yeah. so we had the same thing last year we set trail cameras out i think on august 15th now it was august 13th or 14th and when we went and checked them in season a month later when we got in there, there were a pile of bulls, almost all hard horned by September or October, sorry, August, <laughs> August. 16th or 17th. Um, and yeah, they were fighting by the 19th of August, pushing each other around, starting to, you know, and big bulls. This isn't like little raghorns locking up and just sparring. This is bigger bulls pushing each other around talking, you know, bugling, like you said, glunking, stomach moving up and down, panting, laying down in the water. I mean, it's not the full intense rut that it's going to be a month later, but they're susceptible to communication through calls at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, that's always, for me, the, this trigger of when we're starting to leave the, the early season and go to the pre-rut is yep. they rub their velvet. They're no longer in bachelor groups. They're raking trees. They're they're like, all right, it won't be long now. Yep. And to me, that's like, okay, they're starting to forsake the food. And by the end of August, they're completely dispersed. The yep. younger bulls are right in amongst the cows. The older ones are kind of, they're, they're on they're the move. Nearby. They're moving ridge by ridge. You know, yeah. they're still traveling, but they're, they know where the cows are. Yeah. So the calling earlier in the season, that's, that's where I need to get comfortable with that and quit just checking the box at all. Well, another, the problem, another hunter out here. The problem early is you just don't hear as many bugles. Mm -hmm. You know, they aren't as vocal. It's, 
73 degrees as soon as the sun comes up. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's earlier, the days are longer, it's getting hotter, so the, the action just isn't the same. But if you can get an elk to pipe off on August 26th, that elk is easier to call in that day than any other day of the year. Really? Why is that? Haven't been pressured yet. There's been no hunting pressure on them. They haven't been educated. Uh, they're very irritable. They're very territorial. They don't have cows, so they aren't following cows to a bedding area. They aren't worried about leaving their little bedding area and walking over to you because they aren't leaving cows. You're getting too close into their territory, their staging area, their bedroom, and they're like, I told you yesterday, I want nothing to do with you. I'll see you again after the rut, but we are not friends. And you're getting too close here. You know I'm here and you're still walking this way, running your mouth. I'm going to come and really? run you off the hill. Wow. So I really think a, a big bull is, and I'm not going to say easier to kill, but more susceptible to killing with calls uh, up until September 8th. After okay. that point, it gets harder and harder. So you know, walking through that example, because I've heard this, you know, I don't know how many times it's a September 1st type situation. And you hear a bugle and you're like, well, first of all, was it a hunter? Yeah. Or was it an elk? Okay. I think it sounds like an elk. Because it's not usually a full aggressive bugle. <clears throat> it's just that whistle, high pitch that, yeah, could be a hunter for sure. Yeah. So in that situation, are you going to try to close the gap and make him more irritable? Or are you going to let him kind of tell you what you're going to do? It's usually a, a slower, less, and I'm not going to say less aggressive, uh, a more patient approach to it. Because mm -hmm. if you go just guns blazing in there, it might be too much. You know, okay. that bull is just, he might only have bugled twice that morning and that's all he's going to talk all day. But now you know he's there. And you've at that point, you can probably determine he's by himself. In those staging areas, they, they hardly ever move. I mean, they're moving 100 yards to go out on an open hillside and feed. Then they're walking right back into that little patch of timber. They're bedding down there. They're getting water from a little spring or something right around the corner. They're locked in in that. If, if he's on that hillside or that bench uh, on August 26th and he makes a noise, he's probably going to be there for a week mm. and he's not going to move from that hillside. So you can take your time. You can move over there. You can get set up and get really close. And it, you know, if it was me, I would get in there and I'd cow call a couple times and then I would sit quietly and listen for five or 10 minutes. Mm. And then I'd cow call again a couple times. And so often in that early season, you're just going to hear a branch break. You're going to hear something, or you're going to look over to your right, and there's a bull standing there <laughs> still with his summer coat on, not a great big mane, yeah. but, uh, you know, antlers might be a little lighter colored still, but he's going to come in to see what's, hey, what's going on here? I didn't expect cows to come to me. You know, yeah. this is, I'm going to go check it out. The other thing is, is you get in there and, and cow call and he fires off a bugle, you hammer him right back and he's like, huh, you know, pregame, I guess we're going to go yeah. and, and uh, strengthen my neck muscles here and see which of us is tougher. So I've, I've had some incredible calling uh, August 27th, 28th, August 30th for sure, because that's opening day in Idaho. And really? we very rarely have had an opening day where we didn't get into really good calling action. Wow. Okay. I got to adjust my plans then because at that point, I'm still thinking about walleye fishing. <laughs> Because I'm like, oh, these are just going to be human bugles I hear if yeah. I go out that early. So I usually, <clears throat> in Montana, we always open the the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. And I usually let those, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, because the woods are... Oh, man. You got 
non-hunting recreationists and all the hunters. I don't think there's Because everybody a, has a three-day weekend. It's vacation. Yeah. And you couple that with hunting season. I don't think there's a busier time to be in the woods Mm-mm. in Montana. So I avoid that weekend. I'll find... If my wife is going to convince me to fix the washing machine, it's going to be on that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But maybe I'm... But now hearing you tell all this, Corey, I'm like, well... Maybe I'm just missing the boat here. Maybe I, no, oh well. I guess. Well, and you, you know, you have to look at the moon also. And this year we've got a full moon on September 10th, mm-hmm. which means the third to the tenth is going to be uh, winding down a little bit from a moon phase perspective. Mm-hmm. But that also means that August 30th through September 3rd is going to be a good moon phase. It's mm. going to be early. Those bulls are going to be by themselves. They're going to be irritable. I mean, there's a there's definitely a window for opportunity, even for calling during that time. So you're saying I should give up on pronghorn hunting the last week of August? If you have a choice to go elk hunting when elk hunting is slow over pronghorn hunting when pronghorn hunting is on fire, always choose elk hunting. All right. Huh. Well... Not words to live by. (laughs) (laughs) You aren't putting that on your limb sticker, huh? That is not going on my limb sticker. That's a pot liquor's comment. There you go. Yeah, that's for all the pot liquors. Because normally what we're eating in elk camp is the pronghorn I killed the week or two prior. Hmm. If I get attacked. Yeah. So, but, uh, so, um, some of these other setup things, uh, it just to me seems in the way reason I'm struggling to to bring them all to one question because we get so many of them is it seems to be so situational right. dependent and what your call setup issues that you're dealing with on a grassland mesa of pinion juniper in New Mexico or Arizona is a hundred percent different than thick woods of northern Idaho yeah. or northwest Montana. Or, whatever. Yeah. Um, are there any general rules about the thickness of the vegetation where you, if you were given a choice, would you rather call in really thick timber or sparse timber? Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, that's a great point, you know, and I think it's hard to talk to a certain situation unless you're there because there's so many variables, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the density of the elk herds, the dynamics, the bull to cow ratio, the, you know, just everything that goes into what contributes to the elk activity and the elk decisions and and those things. It's hard to speak to that. As far as calling though, I don't want to be in the wide open because that just gives an elk, he can get to 200 yards and see where the calls are coming from. He doesn't have to come any closer. So it's hard to pull elk in, in the wide open. Uh, You know, we hunted the Oregon coast for Roosevelt elk and I had an elk screaming at me seven yards away and never even saw him. Couldn't even see movement through the vegetation because it's so thick, seven yards away. So that's the, that's not even the, the, this room is bigger than seven yards across. No, there were a couple of times I started panicking a little bit because I thought if he does come out, he's going to be on top of me. Like my only shooting lane is four yards away here. And so, you know, in that situation, it's tough because you can get right in. And there's just so few shooting lanes. So for me, uh, I like, I wouldn't say heavy coverage, but Mm. I like heavy timber, you know, dark timber and North face, uh, maybe more, I don't really want to say open timber because I don't want to give the impression of, you know, a a selectively 
logged area where there's a few trees. I just like mm-hmm. old growth, heavy, dark timber to go into where I've got 40 to 45 yard shooting lanes in four or five places, mm-hmm. you know, frequently. Yeah. Um, well, when you're talking about dark timber and North Faces and stuff, I just posted the first video of a of an e-scouting series out on my YouTube channel talking about these bedding areas. Yeah. When it's hot, thermal regulation is a huge issue for an elk on September 5th when it's 88 degrees out. Yep. So he is, you, you know which places he's going to go to just by what gives him the thermal cover. Yeah. And most people think of thermal cover in terms of, oh, it's not as cold in the winter. <laughs> well, when you look at how much nutrition or what the energy cost is for them to stay cool in hot weather, you can, pr- if you're wondering, okay, these elk are moving to somewhere where are they going to bed? You can cross off every southeast slope, every south slope, every southwest slope, and every west slope. Yep. That leaves you maybe northwest, likely north, maybe northeast. So it's... Yeah, think where the afternoon sun is. The afternoon sun is moving on the western half of the sky. Mm -hmm. That's when it's the hottest. That's when the elk are bedded down. They're probably not going to bed on that west side. It's going to be a north-northeast yeah. Side, that's going to be the coolest place that doesn't get the most direct sun. Yeah. And so if you're trying to think of, well, I hear them moving, where are they going? They're going to those kind of places in a place where they've probably bedded yeah. 300 times in their lifetime. And they know exactly what the wind and thermal is going to do yep. at that time of day in that bed they're laying in. But that's where they're at. And so you get your chance to go there and and uh, try to get them in range. And yeah. uh, so another thing, you know, you bring that up, and it's completely unrelated to calling. But when you shoot an elk, and especially if you make a, a bad shot, you know, like a gut shot, they get fever. I mean, they mm-hmm. get hot, and they are still trying to thermoregulate. Right. And so where are they going to go? The coolest place they can find. So it's usually mm-hmm. down in a draw where there's water. So if you do shoot an elk and you don't have blood and you're trying to find it. Usually you aren't going to find it out on an open south face slope laying there dead. It's usually going to be down in a draw where it's cooler. And understanding that when you shoot an elk and it's wounded, its body's response to that is fever. You know, it heats up, it gets hot. So they're going to look for a cool place to lay down the same as we do. And we get the flu Mm -hmm. or a fever or something. We're sitting there sweating. It's like, I need, you know, cold bath or I'm going to go outside for a minute because I'm just, I'm too hot and... Just understanding those little things and where you're going to find the coolest places helps with bedding. It helps with, you know, tracking all those different things. Yeah. And once they go in bed, there's also some, a little bit of that, that come into play about where they're going to go feed first in the afternoon. So if you just had, let's say one little mound and just for the simplicity of it, they go in bed on the North Northeast side of that. Well, the west slope by right now in August is completely torched. The south slope is nothing but dirt. The southeast slope, well, yeah, it's got a lot of sun, but it's not the intense hot sun. Well, over on the east side, right where the timber starts to meet the, you know, the, there's a, a you'll usually have the timber grows around the northeast and rolls towards the south. And somewhere on that east slope, there will be 
an edge. And that east slope edge compared to the west slope edge is going to have way more lush vegetation because over the course of, let's say, last half of July and August, that eastern side hasn't been getting fried like that edge condition on the west side. Yep. So if you're wondering where are they going to go first to, to feed in the afternoon, they're most likely going to head to that east side or southeast side where it's open and there's some forage on the edge of the timber. The shade is going to hit there first. It's going to be the coolest spot on the mountain and it's going to be the greenest spot on the mountain. Yep. And that's where the cows are going. And if that's where the cows are going, that's <laughs> who's following the cows. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of that stuff, uh, I've, I've sat there many times on a hillside thinking, man, I messed that up. Where are they going to go? And if you really try to think like an elk that doesn't want to waste any energy, doesn't want to put themselves at any risk that's unnecessary, it quickly becomes obvious where they're going to go in the afternoon. Yep. And that's why when I e-scout, the first thing I look for is a north facing slope because mm -hmm. that, you know, your north, northeast facing slope is, I, I, I throw out numbers all the time and it's more of a general reference, but 90% of the time, that's where you're going to find elk bedded. Mm -hmm. And when you spin the aspect on your e-scouting around so that you're looking into those north, northeast slopes and you look at a pretty big area, there's really only going to be six or eight areas that stand out like that's yep. bedding area, that's bedding area. So then you look at those and you quickly realize there's nothing over here where the elk are going to bed. They aren't even going to live over there because they've got feed and water over in this pocket. Yep. And so, I mean, when you really start to understand how elk use, no, when you really start to understand how the elements that elk need are found on certain aspects, it's right. really easy to figure out what aspects the elk are going to, yeah. to utilize. Yeah, and that's... This is where we'll probably get criticized for too much information or making it too easy. But in that video, I show the terrain analysis tool that you and I helped go hunt put together. Okay, we know they want a bed. Maximum slope would be 20 degrees, preferably 15 or less. And how do we know that? Uh, because Google's your friend and you go to the Starkey I was just going to say thank you to Starkey. Yeah, experimental forest and a whole bunch of them. But anyhow... So you do that and you say, okay, I'm looking for an aspect that faces north, northeast. Uh, sometimes I'll put east on there just because I'm trying to see where the edge edges roll around a, a ridge and where it turns from timber to grass. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that rolls all the way to the east. Um, pretty soon your map it, <laughs> there's only a few places that are highlighted green yeah, yeah. and so and when i do e-scouting for these early season pre-rut peak rut i'm not looking for the specific spot on the spot like i got to be right here yeah. to glass i'm looking for where is a ridge line or a basin or a bench or whatever that meets these characteristics because yeah. an elk's doing one of three things during its 24-hour cycle. It's feeding, it's bedded, or it's moving back and forth to the other, yep. a cow elk anyhow. And if I know, if I can anticipate where they're going to feed, and I have a pretty good idea where they're going to bed, 
And there's a big game trail in between the two. <laughs> it, my odds get a lot better if I put myself where the game's being played. Yep. So that's as complicated as I could make that video. <laughs> but it, it took me 18 minutes to do that. There's <laughs> a lot of detail. No, I mean, it's just you start breaking down. And, and I think that's the thing. There's so many aspects that go into an elk hunt mm -hmm. from e-scouting and scouting, you know, the planning part of it, you've got gear, you've got physical conditioning, you've got uh, the thermals and understanding all of these things that the elk use to, for their behavior, their feed sources, their needs. We aren't even into locating them or finding them or setting up on them or calling them. There's all these things. And when you drill down into each of these things, you know, the, the information you've shared on feed sources and, you know, this correlates into that. The northeast to southeast aspect is going to have the better feed in the early season and, and pre-rut. There's just so many levels of this that the more you peel it down, the less areas that there are that you have to look out in the field yeah. for it. So if you really want to drill down... It's going to take some work, but at the same time, you're eliminating a whole big chunk of the landscape where you don't even need to waste your time. Yeah. that and You and I get to hunt a lot, but even you and I try to be as efficient oh. as possible with our time because who, who has any fun wasting their time where there aren't any elk? <laughs> yeah. I know? may not shoot an elk the first day, but you know, I might pass one up, but I want to make sure that I'm having encounters on those days and... Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is efficiency for me is, is the key. Yeah. I want to have multiple experiences. Uh, you learn more from that. Mm -hmm. You're able to make mistakes and overcome those mistakes and still be successful. When you get one chance a year and you mess up one little thing, it, that's it. Yeah. And that's, it's hard to be successful with that. Yeah. And I, I would ask people if, if you're new to this gig or even if you're not, uh, Maybe think about this. I keep notes of what happens each day. And on the days where we have good encounters, whether it's rifle or archery, I try to write down a lot of what were the conditions, where was it at, what was the elevation band. And at the end of a year, I'll go back and look at some of that. And there's a lot of general places of, well, why didn't I spend every day in a spot <laughs> that has these same similar characteristics? For some reason, I, I still stray and wander. Boy, that looks like a cool spot over there. I'm going to walk over there. And, and I was just going to say that that's part of the, um, I'm going to give this a try and see if it'll work. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more risk in it. But I've also wandered into some areas that I would never would have looked because, yes, this is where they want to feed. This is where the best feed is you got a whole bunch of two-legged predators running around out there. And yeah. sometimes they don't get to go for their first choice. So, yeah. yes, you have areas that are the, the highlighted primary areas you want to check out, but don't get stuck in that rut either. Right. You know, make sure that you're understanding elk, they, mm -hmm. they can survive. They will find a way to survive. And you might have to go a little deeper into your backup. Yeah. So there's, there's so many of those kind of things and bits and pieces that... When you get the general question of, well, where should I go? I, I think this podcast is, this episode is a good kind of trend. I don't know if you'd call it, not transition, but a good progression yeah. of how many things go into it. And this, we're just talking, you know, maybe in the archery seasons, the food patterns of pre-rut and peak rut. Yeah. It, 
So we never are trying to blow anyone off by not answering their question, but a really vague question is so hard because you're, you're, you got the whole world of possibilities. Yeah. And, and the one that, that we get that, you know, is super, super hard to answer is I'm hunting Colorado third week of September. What elevation should I yeah. be looking for elk at? Yeah, we've, we got that so many times. Yeah, there are, there are elk literally at 0.5 feet elevation on September 20th, all the way up to 11,494 feet elevation and every yeah. single interval in between. Yeah. And maybe not just in Colorado, but elk will find what they need at, or they'll be at whatever elevation that they can find what they need. Exactly. So never box yourself into, you know, your e-scouting shouldn't be, I'm going to hunt elk between 5,000 and 5,600 feet, and I'm just going to walk that band till I find them. You can't do that. It's, you've yeah. got to, you've got to dig a little deeper than elevation. Yeah. I did the, the thing at Sitka last weekend. I did a, how to find elk on public land. And there's a lot of, people at the Sitka Depot. I was surprised. I think they were there for the burgers. Uh, <laughs> but one guy was asking a question. He lives around here and he's like, okay, so you've convinced me that this is a food pattern. All right. I, I get it now. Peak rut. I got to look for food because that's where the cows are. Yep. Okay. I hunt in this part of Southwest Montana. What food? I'm like, well... And I would answer a little bit in a little bit, and then I quit answering. And he, you could see the look on his face like, come on, man, yeah. tell me. And I'm like, it still is so variable because if, this, if you're hunting one of these ranges with a certain soil type, a certain whatever, it might be bunch grasses. But if you're hunting a different soil type in it's one of those places that's a higher elevation transition range and it gets some moisture in August, a little bloom of Forbes will come out and they will move up 800 feet of elevation to go tackle those Forbes for three days until they eat them all. And I just saw the guy looking at me like, you SOB. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it, 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 maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was either you don't know what I, I'm talking about, which there's a good chance of that or the, come on. Tell me. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I just told him where he could find the information. I said, it's out there on Google. Yep. <laughs> because most every place that I do all this forage research, I'm trying to think if I've ever researched a hunt where I couldn't find what the preferred forage was at certain times of the year. Yeah. You look at game and fish organizations, I would venture to say they probably hire more biologists than, you know, obviously enforcement officers and mm. you know staff workers and things like that biologists are an important part of managing game and so fish and game agencies have biologists that study what fish eat what fish you know how they move what birds eat what birds do what big game you know all of these things that's their job and has been for decades now so there's a lot of information that's been compiled yeah. through those fish and game agencies not to mention universities and scientists and other people who make that their their livelihood or their passion and so there's a lot of information out there that we can relate back to uh elk and especially on the feed sources and some of those movements yeah and uh, i'm just gonna caution everybody if they start nerding out like i do it is going to vary 
so much. It can vary based on a drought year or a wet year. It can vary based on soil types. It can vary based on elevations. It, it, Exposure to the sun. It, oh, yeah. I mean, that's one thing I tell people. Think about when you read the back of a, pl- of a package of seeds and you're getting ready to plant a garden or a flower bed, some will say plant and shade. Yeah. Some will say, you know, does well in sun. And the natural forage that these elk are looking for have those same variabilities. There yeah. are plants that have adapted to high sun exposure. And elk know when they can take advantage of that and when they can't. And there's some that just are like, no, I got to have some shade. Yeah. And you go so, on a north facing slope right now, everything is so lush and green. You mm-hmm. look at that and be like, oh, wow, look at all this green feed. Elk don't stay in their bedding areas to eat. No. So it must not be as nutritious on those north faces as it is on those fringes, like you said, on the southeast, eastern side. Mm-hmm. And there's just all these dynamics that play into it. The sun exposure, the shade that they get during the right time of the day, the way that they're able to utilize the nutrients in the soil to create the feed above the soil that the elk are relying on. That's an important part of the nutrition. It's not just green. It's, oh, look how green this is. There's feed everywhere. No, yeah. that's not feed. Yeah. It's, it's green, it's foliage, but it's not the preferred feed source. Yeah. And as a general rule, know that from a nutritional value standpoint, forbs are always number one for elk. But availability, there, right in June, there were forbs everywhere. Right now, I would challenge somebody to go out and find me enough forbs for an elk that needs to eat 10 pounds a day. So what are they eating right now, mid-August? Grasses. Yeah. And they will stay on grasses as long as they can. Because in the northern latitudes, when the snow cover comes, covers those grasses and they have to switch over to browse, that's a starvation diet. It's just we're not starving as fast as if we didn't eat anything. So think about here, when you have a, a plant growing out of the ground, literally connected to the nutrients with very little geographical separation to the actual food source, there's going to be more nutritional value in it. Mm -hmm. When you go to browse, those are leaves that are on the end of a branch on a tree. So the nutrition has to go from the bottom of the roots of the tree, all the way up that tree, out the branch, onto the limbs, out to the end of it. And it's just not going to be as nutritional. It's not going to put as much of that nutrition into the feed source as it does when it's growing straight up out of the ground, which is why forbs and grasses are more nutritional. Yeah. And so you really get into rifle seasons, late October, November, the elk understand that this is our last chance for grasses because the snow's coming. Yeah, it's dried out grass, but it's still grass. Yep. And they are looking any windswept ridge, any place where it was greener and the grass grew taller so it grows through the snow and gives them an advantage of being able to locate it and maybe paw down to where it is the most nutritional. There's there's so many things that go into this, and there's so many studies out there that I I just encourage people to become a student of elk, I guess is what I'm saying, and and, uh, hopefully they'll do that. But... Well, Corey, Man, that I, was some good stuff. Yeah. It's, it's very rare that we get done and I think, well, that was educational, but, <laughs> but today was oh. one of those days. Well, you, 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 that's because we let you do most of the talking. No, that's not. Uh, but we're about ready. By the time this launches, I apologize again, folks, that 
you know, we were supposed to have a podcast that dropped two weeks ago that was going to be recorded at Park City, Utah. Uh, it was going to be a live podcast yeah. with RMEF. And a thunderstorm came the night before the podcast, and you're going to be like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, that chased the band off the playing platform, and they sent them down to the ballroom where Corey's elk calling contest was going on. <laughs> Not so my the, calling contest. So the elk calling contest got cut short three hours that night, which we had to pick up the next day. So when we filled that three hours into the next day, it ran past when we were going to do the podcast. And they said, well, live podcast or elk calling championship? I don't think they thought about that for very long when they said, no, oh, we're going to yeah, go with the elk calling was... championship. So. Yeah. So that's why we didn't get that one recorded. And then Corey, he he bought like uh, the Starship Enterprise and he decided to drive it through the spine of the Rockies <laughs> on a family vacation. How did it go? Well, I was, I was like Lando driving the Star Wars and yeah, it, it was, uh, I think I described it as driving a hotel down the freeway. <laughs> What, what year was this Winnebago? It's a 2008, so it wasn't like, a, you know, it's not the old tan one with the brown stripe down the side. So here's the problem with the 2008 Winnebago. Either uh -huh. someone's been using it a lot, which puts it on the verge of wore out yeah. and breakdown, or they're like Cousin Eddie, who just lived in it and never <laughs> drove it. You know, they parked it out right next to the... To the, you know, gray water dump there where they can just <laughs> pipe float. right in. Yeah. And now so when it's full, he could yell at Clark, but cousin Eddie, he just lives in it and he never drives it. So is when you buy it then and you take off, the wheel bearings haven't been greased. The fan belts are cracked. Uh, you so, know, there's so old gas in the tank. From that standpoint, we got... Uh, an abs absolute gem of a motorhome. Really? So we bought it from a, an elderly single lady. Oh, come her, on. Now everybody says they bought their car from a little old grandma. I bought They're, it from her at her house because oh, she so was moving She was moving into an assisted living. They're having an estate sale. Oh. She hadn't driven it for two years. When she drove it the previous six years before that, her and two of her friends who were all in their 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. all elderly widowed ladies, each had their own motorhome. They would each get behind the wheel of their motorhome and the three of them would caravan to some place and stay there for a week. The one lady we talked to was 92 and she was getting ready to drive back to Nebraska or somewhere by herself in a motorhome. So from that standpoint, one... Uh, widow lady in her 70s uh -huh. didn't put a whole lot of miles on it and when she lived you know and she actually was camping in it and staying in it it's just her and she yeah. i mean the refrigerator looked brand new the microwave looked like it had never been opened uh -huh. the shower still had sparkle i mean we replaced uh -huh. the mattress and it looked like a brand new machine so we got very lucky from that standpoint from a reliability mm. standpoint it was the engines clean i mean it was it was really nice the problem was gas is at $5.29 <laughs> a gallon, all the way up to over six something in East Glacier a gallon. And doing the math on miles per gallon, about every eight miles down the road, I'd throw a $5 bill out the window. 
And you don't think that's too bad until you go 80 miles and realize your wallet's empty of $5 bills and you haven't gone very far. So we didn't even make it from, from home to Park City, which was the first leg of our trip, before I said, hey, as soon as we get home, we're putting this up for sale. Oh, wow. And it wasn't, it was just, you know, as, as we went, and they are, they'll be great. Someday I'll probably have at least an adventure van or something. Mm -hmm. But for our family right now, it was a novelty and it was fun and everything worked out great. Uh, but you get to East Glacier and you realize anything over 21 feet is not even allowed in the park. Uh -oh. And we've got a little motorhome that's 24 feet. So we had to park it and ride the shuttle everywhere. Uh. You get to a nice, bumpy, graveled, rutted out road. And there's some fishing holes a mile and a half down it. And you realize, well, we can't just drive down there and fish. And we don't have any way other than walking to get down yeah. there. And so it just really limits what you can do. Hmm. And for what we do and where we are in life right now, we, we're not looking, not looking for those limitations yeah. yet. That's why you, maybe you should have stopped and picked up some llamas from Bo down there. No, nah, we're not. Yeah, I mean, that's what we are picking up llamas. I actually texted Bo the other day and we oh, have really? uh, we have llamas reserved. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Well, just don't be taking mine. He's bringing six of them to my house tomorrow. Oh, is he? No, not. What's today? Saturday? Yeah. So, on Monday. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe he's bringing them to you to train for me. No. Uh, <laughs> we're uh, volunteering for a backcountry uh, wilderness area fence pole. Uh, there's oh. a old grazing fence that elk get hung up in. Uh, well, you can't go in there and haul all this stuff out with, you know, an ATV yeah. or a truck or something. And so the old boy who's got the grazing lease, he's like, I don't know how you're getting those T-posts out of there. I'm like, well, I'll do it with llamas. And he just about spit <laughs> his coffee out. He's like, llamas? I'm like, Yeah. He's like, I want to see that. <laughs> so we're going down to the campground uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday night with the llamas. And then we'll go back in on Tuesday. And Bo says that each llama can carry out 14 T-posts easily. Wow. Well, they weigh just under eight pounds a piece. Mm -hmm. And he's built these little carriers to load them up. So wow. I'm going to be shuttling. It's three miles each way, so six mile round trip. I'm going to be shuttling T-posts out of the wilderness Loading llamas with T-posts. With a great big string of llamas. That and, is awesome. Uh, yeah. And being the great guy that Bo is, I'm like, well, I want to pay you for these llamas. He's like, nope. If you're, you and your crew are volunteering their time, I'm volunteering my llamas. So. Wow. But well, that just speaks to Bo's character, which hopefully anybody listening already knows Bo's character. But yeah. he is, yeah, he's he, a gem. You know, he does have a few uh, llama openings yet for hunting season. That's so. what I was surprised because we just uh, we decided to do the hunt just this past week, and so I texted him and said, "Hey, any chance that?" Uh, first week in November, you might have four llamas, and he said, "I sure do." So, uh, yeah, well. I told him I didn't need my four for the first week of November. Maybe well, maybe that, I'm getting yours. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe get Mac and Quigley and Pancake. And usually he throws another one in there. I, I, I get the <laughs> rotation of Oliver or Tokyo or McShane or somebody. Yeah, I've but, had Tokyo. We yeah. had Donnie, which yeah. was actually Johnny, but had the ear oh, tag yeah, of Donnie. Oh, yeah, that'd be a problem with you guys. We, it said Donnie on the ear tag. Mm -hmm. His name, the llama's name was Johnny, but... 
Yeah, we had Donnie and Donnie Johnny. So. Uh, speaking of Tokyo, this had nothing to do with elk hunting, but we're coming back from New Mexico, me and Marcus and, and Dan. And we'd been down there for the early archery elk hunt. And uh, it was so blasted hot. We took the llamas way back in and there was no water. There wasn't an elk track anywhere. Like, well, I've drug these all the way down here for nothing. Well, after the hunt's over, we try to get some miles on the first day, and we stop in Farmington, New Mexico, out in the middle of nowhere on some BLM because we got to let them out and water them and feed them. And uh, <laughs> Tokyo wanted out. And Marcus open the slides the back door open on the trailer and Tokyo runs him jumps over. in his lap <laughs> and all you hear is Marcus cussing at Tokyo and I'm like what's the commotion going on back there and Marcus is trying not to let go of Tokyo and Marcus is laying on his back it's pitch dark and Tokyo is wanting out and wanting to get away and he is just stomping the bejeebers on Marcus he has no idea what's going on I came back there and I grabbed Tokyo and Oh, Marcus was mad at Tokyo. It's like, Marcus, he wanted out, man. He's in there with all these other old boys and they're beating on him yep. and he's got to pee. He wants out of there. <laughs> and that's about as much of a rodeo as you're ever going to get out of llamas. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the Had it old, been a horse? Yeah, oof. it would have been a yeah, that's, much different story. That's the only time we've ever had any issue with llamas. And, you know, it's just pitch dark. Yeah. And... uh Something other. holding onto its neck, pulling it down to the yeah. ground. It's, it's like, I got to fight for my life here. And Marcus is down there kicking. It's kicking. I wish we could have filmed that. That would have been a great <laughs> blooper. But Well, Corey. Uh, I'm going to go I, jump on a plane. Yeah, you should do that. I'm going to head uh, back I, to where it's hopefully a little cooler. Yeah, I got to go back to a symposium here and uh, act like I know what I'm talking about. But they pretty much, they've sniffed me out. They know I'm full of it. Um, but... <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yeah. It's and, good to uh, do one in person together. And yeah. And look forward to, to hunting season and catching up. Um, folks, if we do miss or delay a little bit in hunting season, it's because, well, it's hunting season. We don't, we don't live September, October, November just to do podcasts with all due respect to the <laughs> listeners. No. But we will give you a full report at some point, probably during season and after season for sure. And yeah. Share those adventures. Yeah. So, anyhow, thanks for being here, folks. Yep. And if you don't hear from us before season, good luck out there and uh, keep us posted on how things go for you. Do it. <laughs>